The following interview from the Morning Show Archives was first broadcast in 2007. Some of you may recall a, a really fun interview which happened here on the Morning Show uh, a couple of years ago now with an author by the name of Charles D. Cohen, who is without a doubt the world's foremost authority on uh, Ted Geisel, also known as Dr. Seuss. That book called The Seuss, The Whole Seuss, and Nothing But the Seuss. We have uh, Charles D. Cohen with us again on the Morning Show today, this time to talk about a special 50th anniversary edition of one of Dr. Seuss's greatest classics, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Charles D. Cohen, we welcome you to the Morning Show. Well, thank you very much for that introduction, Greg. Uh, I had a great time speaking with you last time about that book. That occasion was the 100th anniversary of Ted's birth, and now we've got the 50th anniversary of one of his most famous creations, as you said. And it is great to be revisiting this work uh, in its original form, and then to enjoy this uh, wonderful retrospective at the end of the book, in which we hear a lot about the, the background. Uh, I wonder if you would explain to our listeners one of the first things we see in that retrospective at the back of the book, on pages 54 and 55, uh, we see at the bottom of the page a strip of eight different covers of this classic, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Tell our listeners what I'm talking about and what that says about this story. Uh, thank you very much again. Uh, yes, what I found was, as I was doing research about this, was uh, the surprising number of languages that this book has been translated into. Um, we had, uh, it was translated into Icelandic, uh, into Hungarian, Japanese, uh, and down at the bottom of that you're, the area you're talking about are several of these different editions. And it's interesting, too, of course, he's not called the Grinch. I think in Japanese he's Gurunichi, and uh, in, in Iceland it's uh, G-O-R-C, no, Iceland, I'm sorry, it's T-R-O-L-L-I, and in Hungary it's G-O-R-C-S. So he's become a well-known figure, not just where we know about him here, uh, but all over the world. As, is, as, as we learned from your, your previous book, so many of the creations that we've come to know and love by Dr. Seuss uh, often had kind of long gestation periods uh, in which he would maybe get the kernel of an idea and it would uh, come to life in various forms and in kind of different stages before uh, finally emerging. Tell us just how circuitous a route it was in this case from original idea to final flowering you put that so perfectly i, I could have used you writing the book that was wonderful <laughs> uh... yeah it, it, he had a phenomenal memory ted geisel and things would stick there he would get an image or a thought and he might work it out in one of his cartoons he used to be a cartoonist and an advertising man um, and then i think completely unaware they would just sit there for maybe two decades and then blossom later uh, in this case, the first inkling I really saw of a Grinch character was back in the uh, late 20s. He, had, he was combining several different things that children told their parents about. I'm sorry, the, excuse me, the parents told their children about. Uh, things like the, the Sandman or the Boogeyman and the Santa Claus and the stork bringing children. And he said it was, it was too much for kids to really remember and that he should, we should roll them all into one. And so he drew this image of a, a stork with antlers, and he's delivering uh, a Santa Claus, which is also a combination of the boogeyman, you know, to someone's roof. And I think that Santa Claus boogeyman image was probably the, the first idea of what a Grinch would be like. And then and you're talking uh, almost exactly 30 years later um, when the book finally comes out. Um, now, in between, he, he continued to play with various ideas about the images that we have of Christmas, 
what would bring Santa, you know, how would you change a reindeer, what else would you use. Uh, in the book, we used uh, a couple of the uh, Christmas cards that he made for family back in the 30s, and in, in one of them, there's a series of five of the typical Susian beasts delivering Santa and him saying, after all, reindeer are so common. Um, you know, he would play with these various images, and so I tried in the book to show the, that development, how the Grinch went from this boogeyman Santa into uh, an advertisement for Holly Sugar, which is the first time you see a Grinch looking like the Grinch we know, um, uh, taking Max and having him evolve from a dachshund with deer, uh, with antlers, into the animal that we know with uh, the antlers being tied on, and the same thing for the Who's, for example. Mm. It's really interesting, too, to look at some of those uh, early examples of a character called the Grinch. I mean, to see Dr. Seuss use the term Grinch not to describe the specific character that we know from this story. I mean, sometimes it'll be a relatively pleasant-looking character that will be called a Grinch for whatever reason. That yeah, It takes us a moment to get over the shock of that. Well, this is the fun of, of this part of my job. I get to, to find out of all these things. The first time that he used the word Grinch... Uh, it actually referred to a bird. There's a, a bald-headed uh, Grinch that sits on a rock, and it's in the book Scrambled Egg Super from, I think it's 1953. Uh, the main character walks by, and that animal isn't, that bird isn't laying eggs that day. So it was a completely different thing. And then he shows up a couple of years later in a story uh, called The Hubub and the Grinch, and this is another pleasure in doing a retrospective like this is to, that people have probably never heard of The Hubub and the Grinch, and we get to show people that story. But at that time, a Grinch was developing this sort of nasty streak. Basically, it was someone who sells people things that they don't need. Uh, in this case, a piece of green string that he convinces someone to buy, uh, or rather a hubub to buy. And then at the same year that he, he's having a Grinch sell people things they don't need, that's when he draws this Grinch character that we think of, and he's selling people sugar. Mm. <laughs> he tended to do this where he didn't think so much about the interplay between the two, the commentary. Mm. Of course, for a lot of people, they know this story best either from the most recent uh, live-action uh, feature film or maybe even more likely from the, the magnificently rendered animated special from the mid-1960s. I suppose in either case, if that's how you primarily know this story, it's going to be a real revelation, in a sense, to pick up this book and read the story in its original form, although it really shows us how true the animated special was uh, to this original work. It's part of... Uh I find fascinating the evolution. Uh, you know, when I went into this, I had forgotten that the Grinch uh, had shown up pretty much every decade as a as a reimagined, slightly different looking character. Uh, when you ask someone what color is the Grinch, they automatically say green. We we all think of him as green, but when you look at the book, you realize that he was originally black and white with pink eyes and occasionally that red Santa suit. So um, the 1966 special that you're referring to that he did with Chuck Jones. Um, in some ways almost supplanted this in, in the general consciousness that people have. But when you go back, um, it, this is still very endearing. It, it, there's something charming about this original. Um, it was interesting. He was able to do such a fantastic job with Chuck Jones because they had worked together already in the Army on films. They had a rapport. Um, that, that one, Ted's main contribution was all of these uh, lyrics for these wonderful songs sung by Thurl Ravenscroft. Um, and but people may not be aware, just like they wouldn't know about the Hubub and the Grinch. But the Grinch in, in 1977 appeared in a story for television. 
uh, called Halloween is Grinch Night, which won an Emmy. And then in 1982, there was a story called The Grinch Grinches, a Cat in the Hat, which also won two Emmys. Uh, and Ted wrote both of the scripts for those. And then, of course, people know him from the 2000 movie with Jim Carrey. So each, uh, this is part of what adds to his popularity. Uh, the, the original book, people can read now. The messages are still timely, still relevant. But also people have seen it. Uh, you know, new generations have seen it in ways that are comfortable for them. Hmm. I think in your retrospective, you, you really point out kind of an interesting point, which is that you know, here you are really doing a lot of research about Dr. Susan, in this case really carefully tracing the emergence of this work and the way in which it's been transformed over the years. Uh, you point out quite rightly that there are people that have done Ph.D. theses on how the Grinch stole Christmas and other Dr. Seuss works, and you share with us uh, uh, something that Ted Geisel said at one point upon when when confronted with that uh, that reality that people were putting his works under such a, a careful sort of microscope. Yeah, it, it's an odd position to be in. Uh, I, I always keep in mind that the quotation you're talking about where people asked him about that, and he would say how people would do this thesis about his particular use of a color, you know, a single color. And, you know, I've, I've read these things, whether they be in theses or just in, in critiques, uh, and people will go on and on about a particular color, and then he'll point out that it, it had nothing to do with that. It was that Random House was having a little tough time financially at the time and told him to cut down his number of colors. Um, so I'm always aware of, of drawing conclusions. Uh, and it was, very, it was a very risky thing to do, even if you listened to interviews that he did or read interviews, because he was such a great storyteller, all he cared about was amusing people, that he didn't always tell the truth. So, you know, you have to, this is my job, is to go back to the first-hand sources, sort through the, the stories he told or the things that we've come to think about him and get back to what really had happened. Hmm. It's interesting, too, you quote his memoirs where, where Ted Geisel said, it's the product that's the most important, not the process of how it was created. It's so ironic that he said that because, in fact, your, your magnificent first book, The Seuss, The Whole Seuss, and Nothing But The, nothing but the Seuss, is almost almost entirely taken up with that process. And we're so glad you uh, you uh, disregarded Ted Geisel's thoughts on that because, I mean, really, it, it only enhances our appreciation of the final product when we understand uh, the process by which it was created. Well, I, I appreciate that analysis and your incredible memory about the previous book. Uh, it, it's true. I, I think that both are true. I, I think what he was trying to get at was that, uh, in the end, as the person, as the artist, what he wants to see is the final product. He wants to see that this is something people can enjoy, that the artwork came out well. I mean, he, this was agonizing for him. He would, we, we look at a book and we say, you know, that's, it's only got 200 lines in it. You know, how long can that have taken to write this children's book? But he would agonize for a year and painstakingly to try to get down that rhythm we think of as Dr. Seuss, you know, that, that particular lilt to the language, uh, was just such an effort for him. Uh, and, you know, that, when that's all done, you want to know that, that's what you want people to focus on. He didn't care about the process. But, you know, when afterwards, I mean, that's fine when the book first comes out. But, you know, you and I, uh, I'm sure, and, and many of your listeners have, have enjoyed these books. Well, here we are 50 years. It's also interesting for those of us who want to go beyond that to find out where do these things come from. You know, for him, it's hard in an interview. He had a thing he would tell people if, if there's this place called the Bilnikoff, you know, near the Swiss Alps, and he would go there every year to get his cuckoo clock fixed. And this is where he got his ideas for his books. 
I mean, he would just make things like that up because he didn't want to have to answer the questions. That, w- that was tedious. What he wanted to do was talk about the work. But for us now, it's fascinating, and I don't think he knew. I don't think he realized that the images that we see had occurred to him earlier. That wasn't of interest to him, but I think now if he could read them and go, geez, you know what, I, I, I completely forgot about that. And, and, and with, at the risk of running on in this, I had just spoken with um, his agent, uh, Herb Chayette, uh, who delivered a, at his memorial, at Ted Geisel's memorial, a, a wonderful story. Um, I don't know if we have time for the whole story, but basically the, the point of the story was about Ted deciding that rather than being paid the most money per word, he would rather turn down the most money per word. Uh, and this story was about a piece that we included in this book. It was called The Prayer uh, for a Child. But at the time, they didn't even know that that had been published. This is his own agent, and Ted didn't remember writing that piece. It was a complete surprise to him when he saw that. The, you know, the person who told the anecdote in 1991 at the memorial told me he didn't know that that was the piece until he read the previous book you were talking about in 2004. So, you know, Ted just, he did these things, he did such a massive amount of work that a lot of it would have been unfamiliar to him, and that's why it's worth doing these things and showing the process, as you had said. Well, we're glad you did it, and we're so glad to have this 50th anniversary edition of How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And Charles D. Cohen, a great pleasure to speak with you again. Happy holidays to you. Thank you so much, Greg. It's a pleasure talking to you.